This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello. And welcome to this episode of Women in Engineering, success stories from STEM professionals. In this episode, I will be talking with Dr. Jamel Ellis, founder and CEO of Empowerment Strategies, LLC, and senior scientist at Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership about the vital role of diversity and inclusion in STEM and the unconventional paths to success in the fields of science and engineering. I am your host, Tiffany Tichy, a senior mechanical engineer, STEM advocate, TEDx international speaker, and an internationally recognized author of children's books, including What Can I Be? STEM Careers from A to Z and STEM Crew Kids Adventure Series. I'm also the host of the Read It Right Radio Show on WDRB Media, the owner of Thrive Edge Publishing, as well as the owner and publishing consultant of Inspired Authors Publishing. And with that, let's jump right into today's episode. Before we go on here, here's a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, PSNS. PSNS is an award-winning one-stop shop of architecture and engineering excellence. The depth and breadth of their expertise has helped PSNS grow into a firm offering multi-discipline, full-service architecture, engineering, design, environmental, and surveying consulting services. They offer a single source for planning, design, regulatory compliance services on diverse projects across several market segments, including education, energy, utilities, hospitality, entertainment, infrastructure, public improvement, real estate, and science technology. Having proudly served a sophisticated client base operating in numerous industries, they know the importance of developing on-time, cost-effective, and high-quality solutions to the most difficult challenges. For more information, visit psands.com. That's psands.com. To the main segment of our episode, today I have with me Dr. Jamel Ellis. Dr. Jamel, welcome to the Women in Engineering podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes, yes. Let's go ahead into it. Could you describe your role as a senior scientist and elaborate on your involvement in both for not for profit and nonprofit organizations? Sure. Um, well, I currently serve as the senior scientist for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Um, it's a national organization with a mission to guarantee all Americans quality places to hunt and fish. And we do that by strengthening laws and policy and funding opportunities that support fish and wildlife conservation and access. For me, one of the things that I love about, I'm going to say TRCP, that's kind of, this, that's the acronym for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. I love the work that we do because everything that we do is based on the best available science. And that's the role that I, that I provide. Um, a lot of the work that I do is really working with stakeholder groups, and that's federal, state, corporate organizations, um, other nonprofit. We've got about 63 
nonprofit partners that we work with. And so I work with them on active management of a a variety of landscapes. Um, And it ranges from coastal landscapes to wetlands, forest ecosystems. We, We even work with agricultural and grassland ecosystems. And so um, that's really the work that we we focus on is conservation and, and really supporting the hunting and, and, and fishing or angling community. You asked me about my my business and um, I also in, in 2018, I started uh, an environmental sustainability consulting firm and it's in, it's Empowerment Strategies LLC. With that, the primary focus is on environmental management systems, that's audits and helping to set up environmental management systems using structures like ISO 14001. But it was important to me as a part of that work that I had a youth division. So I established as a part of the for-profit empowerment strategies for girls. And the focus was really to help to increase or promote the interest of, of STEM classes for girls or coursework, and ultimately STEM careers um, in, in getting more girls and young women into STEM career fields. Um, in 2020, we established the Spark Institute, and that's a nonprofit organization. Um, we, myself and my board, have been working, I would say tirelessly. Uh, my board members are all across from, from Texas to Florida and, and locally, but we've really been working to get the infrastructure set up. We just started doing programming, but it's very much a similar sort of thrust. It's not just focused on girls. Um, we're looking at working with young people from across different, I would say primarily black and brown, but underserved communities generally. And so I think one of the key things that I'd like to say about the Spark Institute is rather than a focus on the more general STEM track, regardless of whether it's, you know, technology, math, what have you, we are focusing on three primary buckets, and that is environmental engineering, and I'll say environmental slash civil engineering, and there's some other sort of engineering, I guess, facets that that might overlap with that. But also, we are looking at conservation. Obviously, that's the space that I'm, I'm operating in. That's the second bucket. And then third, of course, is sustainability which is what Empowerment Strategies focuses on, and that's everything from circular economy, zero waste, um, and that sort of thing. So that's that's the world that I'm, I'm operating in professionally. Yeah. Love it. Love it. So talk about your technical expertise and background. Can you share, you know, a little bit of details about that? Because you told us where you are. But let's talk about your technical expertise and background. Sure. So... <laughs> So I, uh, I began my career in environmental health and science compliance, uh, environmental health and safety, excuse me, compliance. And I started, I started straight out of my undergraduate uh, program in the corporate sector. And so that was sort of the beginning. Uh, I kind of wandered into that space. Um, it wasn't something that I had planned on. I'm not even sure I really even knew at that time that that, that was even an option as a career but quickly grew to love it. And um, I really haven't turned back. I've just sort of built on that. Um, After earning my master's in environmental engineering and science, I worked for the South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control. Um, As an engineer and technical liaison, uh, the primary point of contact for four military sites in South Carolina. 
and primarily focusing on remediation of impacted groundwater and soils. And then uh, I would say throughout, there was a period of about 11 years that I served as an adjunct uh, instructor at Midlands Technical College in Columbia, South Carolina, teaching a course called Pest in the Landscape, where I helped to prepare pesticide applicators to take the ornamental turf and pest control exam. Um, so there was that period of time that was sort of overlapping with my full-time work. I earned my PhD in environmental health sciences, um, focusing on environmental exposures to the human population. So where previously I had been focusing more on like delineating contaminants and figuring out the extent of contaminants in soil and groundwater, I made a bit of a switch to looking at uh, more of exposures to human populations and how those, those exposures may um, impact, from a health perspective, those, those human populations. My dissertation focused on exposures to methylmercury through fish consumption in Sea Island and African-American communities uh, in South Carolina, specifically in Beaufort, Charleston, and Colleton counties. And then I had an opportunity to continue that work with the Medical University of South Carolina after, uh, after graduating from the University of South Carolina with my PhD. Awesome, awesome. Kudos to you. You know, I'm currently getting my PhD. <laughs> uh, and so I'm following behind your steps. So I'm footsteps. So thank you for representing as far as becoming with your PhD, as well as all the work that you've done with your technical background. And so let's talk about it. You know, from your perspective, could you provide insights into both traditional and unconventional pathways to achieving success? So let me let me say first, I I can't I will say that there are people who follow a more conventional sort of pathway. But when I'm you know, and when you're okay, when you're young, you sort of live according to this conquering the world. Um, there's something in youth where I, I think most of us, I can't speak for everybody, but a lot of us have this thing in our minds where I want to get to point B, I'm at A, and we think that it's a straight line. If I just check these boxes, I'll get from A to B. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, wanting to conquer the world. And I am one of the biggest proponents ever in terms of planning. So I do I do always encourage and, and try to help um, the young people that I work with to pull a plan together. And it's okay if the plan, if you have to adjust the plan, have a plan, but you have to be flexible. And I really try to use a visual tool when I'm working with young people just to in emphasize or reemphasize that our path in life, whether it's, you know, academic, career, professional, or even personal, a lot of times we think it should be like this by the time we get to 25. It should be by this, you know, I want to have this and this. I, I don't know too many people who have been able to do that. And truly, it's more like a spaghetti, like a cooked spaghetti noodle, where life is just, it's turns and twists, and sometimes it's even breaks. Sometimes you think you might have a plan, and something happens in your life where you're, ex you're exposed to something completely different. And your B might change, and that's okay too. So, I, you know, I think that in terms of achieving success, one, you have to have a plan. I won't take time today, but a lot of what I do is really try to work with students to 
think about their purpose, think about what motivates and drives them personally, and just who they are as a person and, and what they want to contribute to the world and what they want to gain in terms of growing into the person they want to grow into. So I don't really, um, I think there are traditional routes. We make choices that are traditional, but we have to be in a mindset of always being a little more, being okay with being a little unconventional um, in our approach, just to life in general, career or otherwise. So yeah. Agree. (laughs) I agree. You are on it because it's like life changes. You know, a lot has occurred up until this point with the pandemic and everything too. So it's like you had to adjust you know, be flexible. And so, yeah, we all have these plans, but yeah. it comes with the territory. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's great. <laughs> so talk about what motivated you to pursue the career in your field, particularly in the conservation side of it. So, you know, I'll say, I'll start generally by saying that my family um, has had, I would say everything to do with where I am now. And, you know, my parents raised me. They provided for us. We, I did not grow up with a whole lot of anything, money. I grew up with a lot of love um, and, and support. But, you know, as far as tangible things, not so much. One thing I will say is my grandparents are central to my life story and the person that I am. I am incredibly blessed. I had all four of my grandparents until I was about 33. And I still have one uh, living grandparent. She's 98 years old and still influences um, me in in many ways. But all of them were stewards of the land. And so my dad's dad, my paternal grandfather, was a sharecropper. Both were farmers. Um, My my mother's father was a farmer up almost until he became sick um, and passed away. And so I grew up on the farm. I grew up, that's, that's what I did during the summer months. We, we moved back and forth, but I spent a ton of time with my parent, my grandparents. And for me, I was an environmental steward before I even had the vocabulary to define what it was. I always cared about the soil. I'm not really an animal person like cows and pigs. I did what I was supposed to do or told to do, but eh, it wasn't what I chose to do. But as far as like getting my hands dirty and getting in the soil and wanting to understand, you know, botany, if you will, how plants grow, grew and what they need, all of that sort of thing. I owned a landscape design and and installation sometimes company for about 10 years as well, right about that same time I had, I was teaching the pesticides course. And so for me, the work that I do is very personal and it's an extension of the way that I was raised. I'll kind of close out this particular response, I guess, just by saying that even my time now with the TRCP is, it's because I grew up in a hunting and fishing family. I didn't hunt, but I fished quite a bit with my my dad and other family members. But all of my mom's brothers, my uncle, my um, extended family, my brother, grandfather were hunters. And so when I, um, when I became aware of this opportunity uh, with, with TRCP, I felt like this was probably a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to impact advancement of legislation that impacts hunters and fishers, and especially uh, given the 
I guess given the the fact that they are really pushing not just TRCP, but the conservation space is is really trying to get more minorities interested in and involved in hunting and angling, but in conservation largely. That to me was just so appealing. And I, I, I love that work. So that's how I kind of came to conservation. Um, I don't know if I've ever not been in conservation in some, some way or another. Wow. I love it. I love it. And the fact your family played a role with it. And yeah, it's amazing to have your grandparents still live. And I had mine, he was all the way to 102. So they have a yeah. line from your old grandparents. Really easy. And so, yeah. And so the farm and all that played a role with him and all of that. My parents and stuff too with it. So I love how you said the soul part of it <laughs> came yeah. to be where you get to the conservation. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Now let's talk about, you said the whole minorities. Let's talk about, can you discuss the present involvement of minorities and women in the fields of science and engineering? Yeah, I, you know, I, I probably will share some things that uh, those of us who care um, and are focused on, you know, promoting STEM in young black and brown communities probably have some awareness from all different perspectives. Even corporations understand um, that there's a shortage not only, uh, let, let me say generally, we have a problem in the United States by having a shortage of people wanting to, to enter the STEM workforce. So that's the first thing. And then we know that about 75%, let's say of engineers are, are white. We also know that about 25% of the STEM workforce is represented by women. And then I've jotted down a couple of, of notes here. I just wanted to kind of share that African-Americans and Hispanics represent less than 10% of all STEM work, workers, workforce, but compromise, uh, compromise, comprise about 26% of the workforce. And I think it's important to, um, you know, think about those statistics. Those statistics are alarming, but when you look at leadership positions, those numbers drop even more. You know, underrepresented minority women represent maybe 9% of STEM undergraduates. And then, you know this, Tiffany, working in this space that let you look at that 9% of, of African-American women in STEM undergraduate programs, once those, once that demographic graduates, they may work in a STEM career, a true STEM career for a while, and then you start to see an attrition, kind of a decline in, you know, pure STEM professionals where you, we start to kind of veer off into some other HR, other support, but non-STEM type programs, um, those numbers diminish uh, even more. So, you know, if you want to know, we understand, I think, in general, but from a corporate perspective, from an employee's perspective, the reason why this is important is because uh, diversity drives innovation. Um, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You've got to have a diverse workforce in order to continue to drive innovation. There's statistics, uh, research that shows that te uh, teams that have equal numbers of men and women, or at least, I'll say about 50-50, about half and half, that 41% of the revenue that's generated comes from women and the ideas that women um, contribute to that team. 
And so, of course, that's because every person brings new perspectives or experiences and approaches to problem solving. The more ways we can perceive a problem, of course, the higher the likelihood that we develop theories, but that the solve the, the solution to the problems also address a wider community. So as we begin to become more and more diverse as a country, it's going to become increasingly important that our workforce and the solutions that are developed by that workforce um, are represented by, you know, by the, the true demographic of the country. Love it. Love it. I mean, those are great. You've given the numbers, the statistics. So, you know, always room for improvement. So thank you for sharing that. Now let's talk about you. Let's talk about, you know, what would you identify as your greatest accomplishment? And conversely, your most significant setback, if you used to share. So, um, I don't, for me, it's easy in terms of my, my accomplishment, my most significant accomplishment. I share three children uh, with my husband and, you know, I, I use the word proud loosely. I, I don't really like to say that word too much, but I am very proud of uh, my children. And I do consider it a, an accomplishment that I was able to really achieve a lot of my personal goals. They're all young adults now. And it's tough. It's really difficult to work on a master's degree, work on a PhD, you know, try to hold together a, a meaningful career and grow in that career in that space and also raise three children in a way where they come out on the other side as whole people not feeling like they're an extension of me or my husband, but that they have their own dreams and aspirations and goals in life. And and for me, you know, not only am I proud of that, but I, I hope that over the years I've been able to encourage other young people to to pursue their dreams as well. So, you know, people use the term work-life balance. Um, I don't know if that's something relatively new for me. I'm not, I'm not sure I've ever truly had work-life balance. But I will say that for me, I feel like I've been able to, um, alongside my husband, you know, accomplish a lot of the things that I've wanted to accomplish professionally, academically, and and still maintain as meaningful and engaged uh, relationship with my children as their mom, (laughs) um, you know, that I could hope to have have done. In terms of my um, setback, setback? I'll say challenges. It's an ongoing thing. Um, another thing that I really try to incorporate in all of the work that I do, you know, whether it's my children or through empowerment strategies for girls, empowerment strategies for youth, the Spark Institute is addressing this thing of, um, oh Lord, what is it? Called? <laughs> I'm, I just uh, imposter syndrome. I think that. That has been something that I have had to work on um, over time and and really give perspective to the things that have driven that. It has stripped me up, um, caused me not to perhaps pursue some opportunities or pursue with vigor some opportunities just by second guessing myself. And, you know, one of the reasons why I started Empowerment Strategies for Girls, for instance, one of the key reasons for starting that was to help help young girls in this STEM space navigate through imposter syndrome. So 
Yeah, that's good. And that was going to lead into what I was going to ask you. Have you had those doubts and everything? So that's typing into the whole imposter syndrome. How did you overcome it? How did you know, you're helping them? Can you give like one tip on how you've overcome, you know, those doubts if you did have imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think um, if you think about it at, at its core, it, it's a comparison thing. Um, you would get into our heads and, you know, no, no matter where you go, there's always going to be somebody better than you. <laughs> so, and that's not a bad, there's a good thing because we're students. I consider myself a lifelong student. You know, I think that it took me honestly, um, throughout my undergraduate career, I lived in that headspace. I graduated still in that headspace, you know, because I showed up as a what I thought, you know, you leave high school and you're one of the highest achievers and you get to a large institution and all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I'm not a big fish anymore in this little bowl called high school. You know, I'm now with a whole bunch of other people who are high performers and high achievers. But then there are a lot of people, if you go to a school and a lot of people don't look like you, you have to work through that. Um, and then if you've chosen engineering or another STEM uh, major, the numbers decrease even more. Uh, you know, you don't see a lot of black women in engineering classes. And so, you know, ideally you'd like to go into those scenarios and it doesn't bother you. But, you know, one of the things that I like to see a lot, a lot more of the, the colleges are working harder in general, to make sure that they've got not just programs that are, you know, increasing the draw of, of more minority students, but more retention programs. And that means, you know, helping students find their space, not only helping them to connect with other students who look like them, but incorporating them in the mainstream programs so that they see themselves there. That's just as important as anything else for me. It really was a couple of things, um, looking for things like professional societies and groups um, that could help me strengthen um, those, those places in myself that I thought were weak and finding mentors. But truly, it, it, when it comes down to it, it was about thinking about my purpose, finding my purpose, and um, not necessarily trying to outcompete people around me. But looking at this as a continual uh, self-improvement game, and that's that's all you can do in life is use yourself as a baseline and just keep keep building on um, improving your own skill set. I love it. Use yourself as a baseline and improvement. And I love the whole constantly learning. I talk about that all the time. Like we're you're not constantly learning, and you are just stagnant <laughs> and you're not moving in life. So I love how you shared that. I mean, you've touched the whole how to be appealing to women and just, you know, having those retention programs, those different programs. So I love how you tapped into that. So what guidance would you offer to young girls and women aspiring to careers in science and engineering? You know, if you give one, one or two, you know, tips as far as guidance, would you offer to them? You know, I would say take your curiosity outside of the classroom if you're younger. And, you know, if you're a young professional, if you are an established professional, Take your curiosity outside of the organization that make sure you're curious about what you're doing professionally, particularly if you're wanting to stay with an organization. But, you know, be willing to grow outside of 
you know, I'll just say the four walls of that organization, if you will, to learn what other people are doing in that space. Um, mentors do not always look like you. That's something that I would say, particularly as a minority or minority professionals, that we have to make sure that we know that there are people across the board who can serve as mentors. And I've had great mentors in my profession and my career who have not only been mentors, but have become advocates. And that's the second thing that I would say is have mentors. That's important. And this is the thing that I do when I'm working with mentors in my programs is that the goal is ultimately to move from mentorship to advocacy. And so look for advocates, but also make sure that you're, again, it's growing, grow outside of what your, your comfort zone is. So those are probably the two main things that I would say. Great. I mean, those are some key ones. I love how you did that. So as we, you know, close out, what key message or takeaway would you like to, you know, impart to our listeners? You know, I, I, my main thing would be to enjoy the journey. That's probably the most consistent advice that I give. Um, <laughs> full transparency. It's probably something that I have to remind myself of on a regular basis. Um, we get caught up in the day-to-day sort of struggle, whatever that looks like, um, academically, professionally. But it's really in those moments of kind of stress or the pulling or getting outside of that comfort zone. That's where the growth is. And, you know, it's great when we get to the point where we can um, experience and celebrate successes. But it's, I think when we can grow to a place where we can really enjoy the process itself of getting there, or at least have an appreciation, it's, it's not always easy to enjoy when you're going through something difficult, but at least have an appreciation for the fact that this is a process and this, these are stepping stones to get to whatever is waiting for you or whatever you're working to towards achieving. That's it. Enjoy, enjoy the process. It's great. I hope the listeners have been listening. You've been giving some great nuggets and gems. And so I want to say thank you for doing that. Now, how can our listeners, how can I be able to get in touch with you? Is there websites or anything that you might want to share with them? Yes. So we have uh, for empowermentstrategiesgroup.com is um, Empowerment Strategies LLC. If you're interested in environmental health or environmental sustainability consulting, happy to uh, share more with you about what we do. That's also our website. Um, Empowerment Strategies for Girls is es for uh, for girls dot com, and we've got es for youth dot com, and uh, the SparkInstitute dot org will be released. We're hoping at the the beginning of this year. We're in the process now of um, rolling out our new website, um, and then of course you are more than welcome to give me a call. If you have any questions or interest in, in learning more, just chatting about maybe some of the things that um, we've, we've discussed here today. So, Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jamel, for, Dr. Jamel, for, for representing um, and being a great example. Um, and so thank you for the opportunity for you to share these great gems. And we appreciate you. It's my pleasure to be in such good company. Thanks so much, Tiffany. And good luck. Good luck on your first quarter of your doctoral degree. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss upcoming episodes featuring interviews with inspiring women engineers discussing about industry trends 
and much more. Go to womeninengineeringpodcast.com where you will find a summary of key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, may your engineering endeavors be as remarkable as the women whose stories we're sharing. Stay curious, keep innovating, and engineer a better future.